If you have your Bibles, please open to Romans 4. I do have a couple announcements. One is just because uh, uh, some people ask, I am reading out of the New King James Version. So if you were wondering that, maybe the wording was a little bit different. Um, that's what I'm reading out of. Also, Dan asked me to uh, let everybody know the book of the month is a book called Prayer by Old Houseby. Oh, there you go. Picture. Somebody's ready. So we were supposed to announce this. Um, full disclosure, I'm announcing it because I recommended it uh, a, a few years ago. Uh, I think this is good for the book club, but for anybody here, I will throw this out a few years ago. I just started reading at least one book a year on prayer because prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. And I just felt like I need some encouragement to this. So as a habit, I began to do that. So I've covered a bit of ground in terms of just reading books on prayer. This is my personal favorite out of all the books that I've read. A uh, very unique individual, Ole Housby from Norway. He was actually a very scholarly guy, but he got into this German kind of liberal theology where he admits we created a God that we ourselves could fully understand. And he said, to sum it up, he basically came to a point in his life where he needed a God that was bigger than him. And he met the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. And he was saved and he began a living personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So he's kind of a unique individual where he has this scholarly background, but he had a unique life as well. He was thrown in a concentration camp for a couple of years. He still remained uh, as one of the leads of an evangelical um, I believe college in Oslo or university in Oslo and Norway. And he was, so he's kind of a unique guy that has the learning part, but he can speak to individuals in a very devotional, personal walk with the Lord sense. So I think it's a great book for anybody. I would encourage anybody here to pick it up and to be encouraged in prayer. Uh, some of the things that he says, and they're going to be helpful for me for the rest of my life. So uh, that is my recommendation there. I would say go pick it up in the bookstore, or maybe if you beat everybody to the sale shelf over there, you can scrounge a copy for even cheaper. But uh, let's pray before we jump in here. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters uh, we pray for the people in Florida right now. I pray you just have mercy on them. Lord, compassion. We sit here in a building safe and dry and free and not having to worry about something like a huge hurricane, Lord. But we just pray you would uh, be gracious to them, be with the governors and those that are going to oversee the care and the rescue and all the parts that go into this, Lord. And certainly we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ um, that you administer to them. And Lord, as we come again to your word, we ask that you would allow it to be living and rich in our hearts and lives. We want your word to dwell in our hearts richly. And we want to be instructed in you. So give us ears to hear what your spirit would want to say to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have reached Romans chapter 4. Paul has introduced the biblical idea of a righteousness from God, not from works, through faith. He's put everybody at this point 
as guilty before God, mouth silent, inescapable God's judgment, everybody realizing that I stand before him as a sinner. And then he has, in the middle of that, shown how God can be both just and the justifier of those who come to him by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. How God can still be righteous by being patient with sin and looking at an individual who's ungodly and saying, you're justified. How can God be righteous and still do that? Paul has laid that out to the point where, at the end of 3 again in 26 that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he's laid out the just part. He is now going to press more the path, which is the one who has faith in Jesus. And he's going to show how, again, we receive this justification by faith, not through other means. So As we look, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Paul has stated here that the law and the prophets witness to this righteousness from God. In chapter 1, verse 2, 321, and he's proven that God can be both just and the justifier. And now he's going to bring out two individuals, Abraham and David, who the particularly the Jewish society would actually use as the opposite type of example and say, because these guys were righteous and did what God wanted them to do, that's why they would be counted righteous in God's sight. Because they're an example of obedience and following the law. And they would use these in, in a more practical, ritualistic sense. Where Paul is going to show, no, actually these two guys show us the same principle that I've been talking about. That they were pronounced righteous as sinners through faith. Joshua 24.2, Joshua would say this. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Joshua makes the point, we, we weren't always Jews and therefore special. He said, Abraham and our fathers, they were idolaters. They, they served other gods. And God has brought us to this point in a unique way. So, again, for the Jew to discover that the greatest saints have no other standing than the same standing as the weakest saints was very difficult, particularly for this Jew to swallow. And it still really is difficult, again, for people today. There's still most people uh, who are in religious kind of realms believe that if you're basically a good person, you'll get in. We don't always like to say out loud what we think, but we, but most people feel like God should accept my life if I'm basically a good person. If I kind of do what I'm supposed to do most of the time and the little, the little times I mess up, he should be able to clean that up for me. And if he can't, he kind of has a problem. And People won't say that because it obviously doesn't sound spiritual, but that's exactly what they feel. 
And Paul has been working against that type of, of idea because deep down that person has something to boast about. They have something to hold on to. And then what he's saying here is, what about Abraham? What, what did he find? Our father according to the flesh. Was he justified by works? Did he have something to boast about? And there's, there's still this sense that people can have. Uh, one commentator called that basic idea a mongrel method of justification. Because it's not actually pure righteousness or pure forgiveness. It's, it's kind of a bad mix of the two where nothing becomes really what it should be. So it was a, a false version of justification, and the Jew was, was tempted toward the same thing. Even John the Baptist would look at the Pharisees, and he knew what they were thinking. He would say, don't say in your minds, but we're Abraham's children. You hear me calling for repentance, and you just think, yeah, but we're Abraham's children. We're good. We're in. He knew what they were thinking. And... Paul is going to move now and show, okay, here's, here's the most important thing. We connect to this justification, not through our works, but through faith. So he says, verse 3, and this is a key phrase, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So that, that first little phrase, right? Paul wants to get to the heart of this issue. And the most important question was, what does the scripture say? For the apostle to go back to this topic and to go to the scripture and say, here is where we have to have the final authority. This is the most important thing. And, and we have to remember, remember that this message that Paul is speaking right now, this is about as cross-culturally unacceptable as a message could possibly be. If you still walk into an Orthodox area in Israel and you try to give this message, you are not going to be welcomed. <laughs> this, what, what Paul was saying was, was not something that was very popular here. It was the truth, but... He's speaking to a, a people that are obviously familiar with the word of God, and they would have tried to use these same characters to justify their positions. But he knows if we actually just read the scripture and see what it says, it will be clear enough for anybody to understand. You don't have to be a scholar to get this. He says, he literally just reads the verse. Notice what he says. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He quotes right from the book of Genesis. Here, here's what the scripture says, and this has to be our authority. Always, all the time. Scripture has to be the final authority, and we have to beware of anybody that we use anything else as the final authority or would not see the scripture as an infallible final authority in the most important decisions in our life. What does the scripture say? A.W. Tozer in his book, Reclaiming Christianity, would say this, the primary thing we need to keep in mind is to join nothing that questions the truth of the Bible. Any movement, 
any church or group anywhere that questions the truth of the Bible is one that you as a believer cannot afford to associate with. Or I would also add in there that questions the common man's ability to read the Bible and get what it says. You, you don't need me or a priest or somebody else to get in between you and the scripture, what God says. The scripture was written for us. We can grow in the understanding. That's fine. And we can have people help us, and that's wonderful. But we never outsource our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're, we're not bringing in other people to make this happen for us. We can read the scripture and we can understand the things that are essential for salvation. This, when Paul says, what does the scripture say? He's dealing with something that is essential for salvation. Things that Paul lived and died for, shed his blood for. And people all through Christian history have lived and died. They shed their blood for whether salvation is purchased through our own works or through the work of Jesus Christ. The truth of that. And I think it's important to recognize when he throws this in there, that he rests his argument, not only his argument, but literally his very life and ministry on a simple saying, what does the scripture say? And we can read the Bible and we can understand what it says. You don't have to listen to me or Pastor Joe or the priest or the church or tradition or whatever some ingrained cultural view is on something, family, even our dearest loved ones, we need to listen to what God says in the most important issues in our lives. And you can read the Bible as a common individual and understand what it says. Because Paul's going to end the whole argument in verse 23 and say, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. The whole point is going to be the simple things that God said all the way back in Genesis are for you and me today, as it was for Paul and the people in his day, to understand. It's written for us too. It wasn't just written for the people then. It was written for the church through history to know the mind of God. And we can very simply ask, like Paul, in pretty essential questions, what does the scripture say? What does the Bible tell us? And if we can't settle there, or somebody tries to get us to move off of that to something else, that's when you have to be careful. And that's even when, as Tozer said, it's time to split over something. Because if we don't have the authority of God, then we have nothing. If we don't have the word of God, then we have nothing. This is the truth. And Paul can very easily just say, what does the scripture say? And he makes his clear point. Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's nothing of works there. That word accounted there is reckoned, accounted. Your Bible might say credited or... Um, reckon or imputed. Uh, that, that word there is used a number of times now moving forward. Seven times in this chapter, it's the basis of our justification. Three, five, six, nine, eleven, thirteen, twenty-two, 11, 13, 22, 
Uh, you can see Galatians 3, 6 in reference to it. But all through the chapter, this is going to be brought up. And Paul wants to make this a point that what we see here, what we received, was accredited to us because of the work of another. It wasn't us who worked who brought this work about, it was Jesus Christ. Abraham was the same. There's nothing about Abraham receiving righteousness because of his own works. In the verse, it says nothing about works. It says he believed God, and it was accredited to him, or counted to him, for righteousness. Simple. Not, Paul makes a statement, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If, if he worked for it, then he earned it. But the point is, Abraham didn't earn it. It was given. And Abraham took the word of God, received it, and lived accordingly. Literally no mention of works in there. So Paul says, okay, we want to go to Abraham. What does he show us? Did he work for salvation? Was he considered righteous before God because of works? He says, the scripture says, he believed. Now he'll go to David, verse 5. He says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Another example, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Here Paul goes to David and quotes from Psalm 32, where David is talking about his sin, having greatly sinned, most would believe, with Bathsheba, and that sin not being accounted against them, and that that sinner finds blessedness and joy. He was, David, a person who sinned against the law and admitted it. We know, particularly in the story of Bathsheba, Nathan comes to him, literally puts his finger in his face and says, you're the man. And here's David the king, really with a chance to defend himself. He could have persecuted the prophet. Many other kings did. The, the law's sentence for adultery and murder was murder. You would die, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. And David doesn't defend himself, he says. You're right. I'm the man. I sin. And God has mercy on him. There wasn't a sacrifice he could have given for that. He deserved judgment. But instead, God gives him mercy, covers that sin. And we talked about, well, how, how can God do that? Well, because there is repentance. And God rolled that sin ahead to Jesus Christ where he was going to pay for it. And so he could justly show David mercy. And David is, again, a picture of an individual who, even though he has to stand before God and admit, you're right, I'm the man. I, the reality is anybody could put us in that position. If somebody knew the truth of all our lives, they could pick out our sin, put their finger in, in our face and say, you're the individual. And we'd have to say, yeah, you're right. But God, verse 5 again, 
It says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. It's a pretty powerful statement there. He's not justifying the righteous. He's justifying the ungodly. That is what we are. And in faith, we're justified through the work of another. I don't trust in my own works. I'm not trying to earn my way there. I don't say, what do I do to change this? You can't do anything. Number one, it's already been done. And number two, you couldn't anyway. God justifies the ungodly, and I believe it. It is his proposition. I, as perfect, will offer you what you need as ungodly. Do you accept? If you're a good businessman, you will accept that proposition. It's the best one running on the face of the earth. Always has been, always will be. And these individuals would want to count on, these guys were godly. They, they kind of earned their way there. They earned their way to be examples. And what Paul is saying is, actually, no. Abraham doesn't say anything about his works. He believed. David admitted that he was a sinner. But he found the blessedness of not having that, in, that sin given to him. But instead, God shall not impute that sin and having it covered in God's mercy. And why was that? Because of their works? Certainly not. God justifies the ungodly. Now, he's going to move on and continue to build. He's going to go back to Abraham, which certainly was um, one of the main characters that they would turn to. Verse 9 says this, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that the faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. So Paul's anticipating again a kind of argument here. Uh, and no doubt he had heard this many times before. He's, he might, he probably heard a Jew say, okay, okay. I admit Abraham didn't earn his righteousness through works. He earned it through belief. But he earned it because he's one of God's children because he's circumcised, because he was in the covenant. So God's special people can believe in this way. And so what Paul is saying here is, so does this type of proposition, this amazing gift that God is offering, does that only come to circumcised individuals or to the uncircumcised also? Is this just for the people of God, the Jews, or is it for the whole world? Where, where does this come then, this blessing? I'm sure he's had many of these arguments. So he's anticipating this. He asks this question, verse 10. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Paul says, okay, when did he, when did he receive that? When did God pronounce that? Did God pronounce that while Abraham was circumcised? Or did God pronounce it on Abraham while he was uncircumcised? And the Jews would know that this happened some 13 or 14 years before God told Abraham to be circumcised. So God pronounces him righteous years before he tells him 
to receive the seal or the mark of circumcision. So Paul knew that they would immediately have to say, well, well, uncircumcised, which would be a big deal because, again, many of the Judaizers, there's a lot of people in that day and age who were saying, okay, maybe you can be saved through the work of Jesus Christ, but you have to become, in essence, a Jew first. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. You have to keep the dietary law. And, and they would pull you back into this category where it's no longer a faith. And again, it goes back to works. Now, this is a pretty incredible statement here that Paul makes in verse 11 when he says this. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. This is pretty amazing here. Paul is going right to really the heart of what was Jewish society, he's cutting right into the, the sinew of who they are, and it's going to hurt. This was a, a whole part of the council, Acts 15, the early church got together. What do we have to ask the Gentiles to do? It was a big, it was a big discussion that they had, which we went over just a little while ago. But for Paul to say that God's covenant people were begun in faith and not works, from the very beginning, they, they didn't earn their position through works by circumcising themselves or beginning to offer sacrifices or keeping the law. That it all started with an uncircumcised guy who used to be an idolater that put faith in the word of God and then was considered righteous. You're flipping the tables. You're, you're turning stuff over here. You're making... Some huge statements. And again, all you have to do is just read the Bible. Read Genesis 15, 16, 17. Read Abraham's story. Anybody can get it. He's just asking simple questions. Okay, you think this is only for people who are circumcised? When was Abraham circumcised? It was, it was a big thing to say here. He's flipping the script on these Jews. And he's saying that circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of faith that he already had. He already had faith. And this just becomes a sign then, an outward picture of that. It was a religious rite that had nothing to do with being declared righteous. And Paul, he's, he's just going to keep repeating this in this little section here. Verse 10, while still uncircumcised. Verse 11, while still uncircumcised. Verse 12, while still uncircumcised. He's just repeating this, hammering this home over and over again for them. He'll be even more direct in Galatians. In Galatians 5.2, he would say this. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. It's huge. If you try to get in that way, then Christ will profit you nothing. That This is why Paul was not exactly popular in every Jewish synagogue he walked into. But there were many who heard him. And they would just read the scripture and they would say, actually, it says that. <laughs> actually, this starts to make sense. It seems like this is what God was telling us the whole time. So he says, verse 12, 
that Abraham is then the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. The, the outward act there was just representative of the inward reality. It's kind of like our present day baptism. And it's a outward picture. We are baptized because we want to outwardly say that the old me, we go under the water, died with Jesus Christ. And the new me, which we'll talk about in Romans 6, is now walking in a newness of life that is Jesus Christ's. And, and it's a public declaration. We say publicly what has happened between us and the Lord in reality. And Abraham was in a covenant with the Lord. And circumcision was a sign of the faith that he already personally possessed. There was a spiritual reality there before there was a physical reality. And the, the remarkable thing is, again, in verse 11, Paul says that this all happened, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Paul's telling us this crazy thing. God did all this on purpose. God wanted an example, Abraham, to be the father, the beginning of everyone who would believe. So he called him out when he was an idolater. He pronounced him righteous before he was circumcised. He put all these things down in their proper place and way on purpose. So that even the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, anybody else who might have been outside of those covenant works could put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ and the ungodly could be justified. God did it all on purpose. He knew it was going to happen the whole time. Again, he's going to repeat this later in the chapter. And then as we, as we already looked at, he, he ends the whole chapter saying this was written for us. This was planned. It was a part of the eternal ages. You can't. Paul isn't changing the story. He's recognizing the story. And it's written down for anybody to read and see and know what God is doing. Who, who does God then justify? The people who keep religious rites or rituals? People who keep ceremonies like baptism or communion? Christenings, confirmations, the people who attend church or give money to it? None of those things. Again, verse 5, not to him who works, but to him who believes. No works are involved. It's not to him who works, but to him who believes. You notice that? Belief and faith aren't a work. They're contrasted with the works. Again, Jesus would be talking to the crowd in John 6. We just went over this a little while ago. And they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? All right, what do we do? Give us something to do. Here's what Jesus said. This is the work of God that you believe on him who he sent. Actually, God sent somebody to do the work. You know what your work is? You believe on me. That's what the work is. If, if you're here tonight and you think you did, you did something that earns you eternal life, what the scripture is saying is you're, you're wrong. And you, you can't do anything to earn it. Jesus Christ has done it. All you have to do is believe.
believe that God justifies the ungodly and that he can because he is both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This was difficult for the Jew to hear. This was, this was going against everything anybody had ever told them, most of them. And it was hard for them to come to this conception. I think Paul knows that. So he continues on. He says this, 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For there is no for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul Paul's going to move kind of to the next problem and try to head that off. And he's going to show that the righteousness that comes through faith is not contingent on the law of Moses. OK, well, if we don't need to be circumcised, we still need to keep the law, right? Well, you have faith if you're keeping the law. There's always a tying a Jesus end something here. And Paul knows that's what they're going to go to, which, of course, the law wouldn't come till some 430 years after God's word to Abraham. But there is still this temptation to go back to those things. And what he says is the promise that God gave to Abraham, all, all the promises that he that he would be heir of the world, which is pretty incredible. That that promise, if it was dependent on keeping the law and not through the righteousness of faith, that it would never come to fruition because nobody can actually keep the law. If, if it was dependent on our personal performance, it would never be fulfilled because nobody can do it. Nobody can love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength or their neighbor as themselves perfectly other than God himself. And those two are the summation of the law, we know, let alone everything else that's said. He says, instead, if, if only those who kept the law were the true heirs, then faith is made void, the promises of no effect. Nobody can keep it because what the law does is it brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. His point is the law causes us to store up wrath. We realize more and more that we've broken God's law. We're, we're all sinners without the law one way or another. But when the law comes in, it causes us to be transgressors. I can walk into a building that I shouldn't have entered and somebody should say, could say to me, you shouldn't be in here. And I could, that could be wrong. I'd be like, oh, sorry. Well, maybe the sign fell off the door. But if the sign is on the door and there's yellow tape crossing it and there's a sign, there's a, you know, a siren going off saying you shall not enter, you shall not enter. And I just ignore all that, rip off the stuff and enter in anyway. I'm worse than the guy who just stumbled in the building that I have become a transgressor. I just willingly cross known lines. And what he says is we're all sinners either way. But the law makes us transgressors. We now know where all the lines are and we cross them anyway. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Stop coveting. You're going to cross the line on your way home probably. The, the, the law, it's, it's not getting us to become heirs of the world. 
the law is showing us the word transgressors. It makes it even worse. We're just stacking up wrath. It shows us that we have problems. That's what the law does. It points us to the one who can answer them. So uh, the, the promise can't be based on the law. It would be of no effect and nobody would ever get to receive the promise. 16. He says, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. Here's, here's the principle. This is, this is what God's putting forward for us. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only of those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Again, it's not just those who have the law or who have been given the seal of circumcision. It's those who have put their faith in the word of God like Abraham did. And because of that, because it's in faith through grace, now the work is sure. It's wonderful right there. It is made sure to all the seed. Because Jesus secured my salvation, the, the fullness of my salvation, not just that I'm not going to hell, but that I'm entering into everything he's promised me, that the meek shall inherit the earth. That one day, like he says in Luke 13, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see, speaking to those who are trying to keep the law, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. We're from all those directions. And the only way I miss out on that promise is if somebody can go up to heaven and take the crown off Jesus' head. It's secure in the work of Christ. I connect to it through faith because of his grace. If it was dependent on me and my works, I would miss out. That he, Jesus is correcting those Pharisees and saying there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're going to see these others enter in through faith and you yourselves cast out because you thought you could get there yourselves because you rejected the work of the son on your behalf. But we're not trying to earn our way there. And because of that, I can rest because I know that the promise is sure to all the seed. Nobody's missing out here. We're a part of Abraham's seed. Through faith, he becomes the father of us all. Paul includes himself in there. Paul includes himself with a guy he just said was an idolatrous sinner, uncircumcised sinner. His example for all of us is given freely and the promise is secure in the work of Christ. Again, Paul will draw in Galatians the same idea of Abraham as our example. In Galatians 3, he'd say, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. That's a pretty huge statement, too. You don't just walk around and say this to all your Jewish friends. Only those who are of faith are of the sons of Abraham. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's pretty huge what he's saying here. And it was something for them to think about. But he declares 
As it is written in 17, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. I love this picture here, right? We, he goes to Abraham very particularly, he goes back here now that he's kind of drawn out this argument, he moves back to Abraham and I think the personal blessings that Abraham received and we see faith resting, I love this little phrase, in the presence of him whom he believed, God. Abraham receives this and he just says, he rests in it. This promise, this word of God, the one who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Uh, one guy translated that, God making alive dead ones and calling things not being, being. I can trust it's God. Abraham receives this word of the Lord. He responds in faith. Who, 18, contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. He, he receives this promise and all the circumstances would tell him there's no way this promise can be fulfilled. He's almost 100. She's like 90 against hope and hope, right? He, it it kind of seems like in all the circumstances, things are working against him. But he receives this promise from the Lord and says he's the one who can call things that are not as though they were. He's God. Past, present, future. He knows it all. He's involved in it all. He has the power to bring everything to his own purposes. And he's the one who gave me that word. This is why it's so important. What says the scriptures? Because what the scriptures say is what God says. And God, past, present, and future, is going to make happen what he says. And Abraham, receiving a promise from God, simply rests in it. He, verse 20, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. I think Paul, again, he's shown that Abraham is our father, our example in these things. And now he wants to encourage Abraham's response, right? This is how he responded to God's promises. He took God's word and he trusts in it. Faith is trust in God's character, Scroggy in his commentary, I, I love his little definition here. He says, faith in an evangelical context is confidence in God, in God and his word. It's an assurance that what he has promised to do, he will do. It is a reliance upon God's known character. It is the re-echo in man's consciousness of the divine voice. Abraham trusted in the word of God. The word of God Almighty. So his life becomes a pattern for us to follow. Now, Abraham wasn't perfect, but he believed God's word despite his own inability, despite his own unworthiness, despite the circumstances around him. He, he wasn't perfect. You know, it does say uh, that he didn't waver at the, the promise of God through unbelief. 
And we could think like, well, Abraham, he didn't do it perfectly exactly, if you know his story. Seems like he kind of wavered, but, but the, the idea here, Abraham failed at times, but he didn't fail in unbelief. He always believed in God's promise. He got scared. Fear is not unbelief. Those things are different. You, you can go to the dentist and he can tell you it's not going to hurt. And you can sit in a chair and know it's not going to kill you. And you're still like, eh, right? Because you can't control the feeling of the fear. But you're sitting there because you know they're going to help you. That, that's not unbelief because you feel like, I don't want a needle in my gum. You're, you're there because you believe. Abraham feared. He went to Egypt kind of fibbed about who his wife was. He, he had fear in his life, but he still believed God's promise. He tried to do things in his own strength. We know that with Hagar. He didn't, he didn't do what he did with Hagar because he didn't believe he would have a son, then he wouldn't have married, <laughs> taken Hagar. He, he was impatient and he thought, ah, maybe we got to help God. Maybe we got to do it a different way here. He still believed in the promise. He had to learn. He had to grow. That's not unbelief. Biblical unbelief isn't a lack of information. Sometimes we think, you know, well, I can't believe I don't have enough information. That's, that's not biblical unbelief. Or uh, just a feeling of negativity. Again, we, we can't control all of our feelings. That's, that in and of itself is not unbelief either. Unbelief biblically is a rebellion a refusal to believe. That's why it can be rebuked. There's a moral aspect to it where you just say, I don't care. You already have everything you need to believe, but you are rejecting it. That's the biblical idea of unbelief. And that's why Jesus rebuked unbelief numerous times. That's why in Nazareth, where everybody should have known him, says he could not do many mighty miracles there, many mighty works because of their unbelief. He rebuked his disciples. Uh, they did plenty of dumb stuff, but he rebuked them most for unbelief. Oh, you have little faith. Oh, fools, so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had written. In the, in the upper room, he, it says he rebukes the 11 because of their unbelief. They should have believed all the people who came back and said Jesus was risen. But he rebukes their unbelief. You had everything you needed to believe. And still you refused to. Hebrews warns us about having an evil heart of unbelief. There's a, a moral aspect to biblical unbelief. There's a refusal there. Abraham didn't have that. Abraham believed God. And he didn't waver at the promise. He had a feeling of fear, just like we might sometimes. He, he got impatient, tried to do things on his own, but he always believed what God said to him. And he trusted in the word of God. And there were trials to his faith, and it wasn't always so easy. I think he watched as things slipped away, right? His home. He watched his loved ones, Lot, his father, Hagar, Ishmael. People that he cared about kind of went separate directions and he continued to walk the path of faith. 
There were challenges. There were trials to that. But he never wavered because, notice again, he was fully convinced, verse 21, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He pressed after God, full and open sail. God, what you said to me, I believe it. I believe it. And he became the friend of God, trusted in his word, in his character. Uh, Chuck Smith, I always remember here, gives just a funny illustration. He said, just imagine walking up to Abraham's tent and you have this happy old guy. It says, giving glory to God, right, in verse 20. And you're like, man, why are you so happy? He's like, I'm going to have a kid. And you're looking at this dude. How old are you? You know, Like Pharaoh looking at Jacob. How old are you? I'm 100. There's my wife. Oh, how old is she? And he's, you know, do you have any other kids? No, no, no. All right, you know, this guy was at the tailgate too early. I'm not really sure that this is going to this is going to happen. Just leave him alone. He's happy. You would you would be shocked having this conversation here with Abraham because he was fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. It's kind of crazy. But anybody who fully trusts in the things that God says can look kind of crazy at times. I mean, you just walk through the hall of faith. It's kind of crazy. Noah building a boat, kind of crazy. Moses leaving all the riches and wealth of Egypt, kind of crazy. The disciples following around Jesus, that's pretty crazy. Marching around the walls of Jericho, that's pretty crazy. You can, you can just walk through the Bible and basically take any type of story where somebody is called to fully rely on God, and it seems kind of crazy. This Jew telling me that if I rely on circumcision and the law for salvation, that Jesus Christ means nothing, that I'm left out, that's kind of crazy. Who used to be a Pharisee? That's kind of crazy. Abraham and the promise is kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy that God will look at us ungodly sinners and say, you're justified. But it's the word of God. And the more simply you can believe it, the more peace you'll have in life. Do we have faith in the word of God? We say we do. But do I have the type of faith that is fully convinced that what he has promised he is able to perform? Because if I do, it will make me look different. It will make me look different in the way that I speak. It will make me look different in the way that I work. It will make me look different in the way that I react to the things happening in the world. It will make me look different in relationships. When suffering or hardship come, it will make me look different at the loss of a loved one or in the face of death. If I believe, like Abraham did, who's supposed to be my father, 
an example. And I don't waver at his promise. I will be strengthened in my faith. I will be able to give glory to God. And I will be fully convinced that what he has promised, he is able to perform. You see, the Bible says, to please God, we must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I don't just believe that God exists. I believe that our God exists and that his particular character, as shown from the beginning of history till today, is the God that I serve. That's why even the unsaved people in the book of Esther could look at Haman at one point and say, if Mordecai is a Jew, you're in trouble. Because <laughs> their God works on their behalf. Do we believe this God? Therefore, Paul says, he says what he said right in the beginning, it was accounted to him for righteousness. He just believed. Now, verse 23, here, here he's wrapping up this point, and I think it's, it's important here. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. This wasn't written down just so Abraham could have it. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. How is this also for us? Well, it's very clear. Because we have to exercise the same type of faith in God's word and character that Abraham did. And as he received God's word and trusted in God's character without works and was accounted righteous, that is the same way we receive righteousness and are pronounced justified. We believe. God said it. Again, it was Paul's hope for himself in Philippians 3, where he says, all these other things I count loss for the knowledge of the excellency of Christ Jesus, my Lord. All these things are done. I just, I just throw all these things aside. I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness, which is from God by faith. I, I give it all up. I, I am not trusting in any of my own works. I have no hope in anything I can do for salvation. I am turning to Jesus Christ for all of it. And Paul is saying, this was written for us. You got to imagine what it was like for this Jew to be sitting there one day, reading that, what was all something else to him at one point in his life, reading this story over and saying, Abraham was an idolater. He wasn't even circumcised. He didn't have the law and God pronounced him righteous and then realizing that that was all because of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He was, notice he says, delivered up for our offenses, not just for the offenses of the men or of the world, but for our offenses, the, the sins that we have committed. Everything that would cause us to stand before God and somebody put their finger in our face and say, you're the man. And we would have to say, yes, I am. All of it. 
Those are my offenses. And he was delivered up for my offenses. Not the only type of sinner that finds themselves there. All of us for our offenses and was raised for our justification. Jesus' resurrection proves his work on the cross was accomplished and accepted and will be carried on and fulfilled. The promise that we're going to sit down with Abraham in the kingdom of God is secured because of the resurrection again of Jesus Christ. Somebody can stop him from being king. I might not sit at a table one day with Abraham. It's not going to happen, though. And my hope in those things is, again, not based on my own works, but because of what he says. And I believe his word and his character. So what comes to us, again, it's not, not that our faith is, is always perfectly mature. Our faith can grow. It can build. The Bible is clear about those things. Our, our faith can exist, and there can still be a measure of fear because we can't shake the feeling of fear. Right? We know that man who came to Jesus and said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. He couldn't, couldn't shake the feeling. But there was faith there. Jesus responded to little faith, even in his own disciples. Oh, you have little faith. He responded to it. But the question is, where do we stand on the end? In the end, I got to put my faith in something or I put my faith in myself. And in the end, I want I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's that's where we stand in his word. And what the scripture says in his work, where, where, what side of the line do I stand on? I, if, if my faith is weak, then you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be on the right side of the line with almost no peace. If I trust and my faith becomes mature, then I'm on the right side of the line and I have great peace. I can glorify God like Abraham. Uh, all the circumstances around me can say no, and I can still trust. I'll give you a cheesy illustration and then I'll be done. I like to watch the Philadelphia Eagles, particularly this year. But obviously, being at church, uh, I don't always get to watch the whole game. So I will record the game. And before I watch the game, I will look at the final score to see if they won. Because if they lost, I'm not going to torture myself. So if they won, I will watch the game. When I watch the game recorded, and I already know they won, I have no stress the entire game. Doesn't matter if they're getting sacked, doesn't matter if there's three and outs, doesn't matter what is, uh, you just think, nah, I wonder how they're going to pull this out. I wonder what's going to happen. They must get lucky. I, there's no stress. Full peace. Now, if I'm watching it live, there is stress. I don't know what's going to happen. I have no faith. There's lots of unbelief and fear and a lot of other things that could be involved, right? And the reality is, when it's recorded, the end is set. And what happens with our lives is very simply this. God already has declared what the ending is. He is God, the one who was and is and is to come. He's, he's going to see the whole plan through, and he has all power and all wisdom, and he's all present to make it all happen. So 
you have two people. <laughs> you have the person who's stressing out the whole time, even though the game's already been recorded and you know what the final score is. Or you say, I know the end of the story. Here's what you say, God, and I can rest in it and I can have peace. That looks like mature faith. It's simple, but it's mature. And guess what? They're going to win either way. <laughs> you could be a person who's stressed out their entire life, worried about everything, concerned God's not going to come through, and he's still going to fulfill his promises. It's just sad you got to be on the ride like that because that's not how he wants you to be. Paul, I think, wants us to have not only our faith in the right place, but he also wants us to say, hey, you should experience in this life what your father Abraham experienced. He didn't waver at the promises of God. He was fully convinced that what he had said he was able to do. And you and I should have that type of faith because this is written for us. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we again thank you for who you are in your word. Lord, I thank you for your patience. You know every single one of us, no matter how much our faith has grown in our life, have our weak spots where we're still just children before you. But we thank you that you are a patient Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord, that you are our God, that you're ready to pardon gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and that you'll never forsake us. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I do pray again, Lord Jesus, for anyone here that might have a heart of unbelief, that you would allow them, Lord, to see your truth, to repent, and receive life in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.